This is Future Tense Fiction, a podcast featuring stories about how technology could change tomorrow. I'm Maddie Stone. Technology is essential to modern warfare and is often deployed in combat with the goal of keeping troops safer. So, when a billion-dollar combat drone joins a squad, the soldiers should welcome the help, right? No matter how much I tell myself it's fine, I have the feeling that this bot is really, really bad news. On today's episode of Future Tense Fiction, we are bringing you a reading of Justina Ireland's story, Collateral Damage. As a veteran herself, Justina knows firsthand how pricey military tech can wind up failing those who serve. I don't necessarily think that everything that is given to a soldier is really there to help a soldier. I think sometimes it's just we put money into a program and that's where it is. That's all coming up on Future Tense Fiction. Stay with us. This is Future Tense Fiction. I'm Maddie Stone. Every month, Slate's Future Tense partnership with New America and Arizona State University's Center for Science and the Imagination publishes a short story that explores how science and technology will shape our future. Now, we're bringing some of those stories to you in a podcast that includes a conversation with the author or an expert in a related field. There may be no institution that's more connected to emerging technology, in reality and our collective imagination, than the military. Much of the tech that's become a part of our everyday lives got its start in the defense industry, from microwave ovens to GPS to the internet itself. On the battlefield, drones, robots, and smart weapons are supposed to make fighting more precise and less dangerous for civilians and soldiers. But in this month's story, Collateral Damage, a platoon discovers the unintended risks of replacing soldiers with machines. Its author is Justina Ireland, a writer specializing in science fiction and fantasy for young adults. She's also a military veteran, and she'll join us later to explain how automation is changing warfare, and not always for the better. Now, listen to Collateral Damage, read by Joanne Lichtenstein. Ted Log, initial entry 35166. Unit 10003 interacted with assigned platoon during physical training and assisted in small tasks. Complete recordings are now available for download. Morale of assigned unit is high and no hostility was experienced. Entry complete. We are at PT. Physical training. The first time we meet Ted. Sergeant Daniels, a stocky white guy with muscles on muscles, is leading the session. Something he refers to as playing card conditioning and that the rest of us call straight fuckery. The setup involves drawing a card and doing a correlated number of whatever bodyweight exercise Sergeant Daniels can dream up, usually push-ups or sit-ups. As the platoon's resident muscle head, he loves it. The rest of us would rather be left alone to sleep in. We're set to leave for a deployment in less than two weeks, and every minute taken from us feels like a personal affront. 
Rolling around in the grass in front of the platoon office while Sergeant Daniels shows off his hard work at the gym is a colossal waste of time under the best of circumstances. But in the countdown to a deployment, it's even worse. I don't have a family in base housing or any of that bullshit, but I like sleep. I definitely would have rather been snuggled under the covers than enduring another round of athletic shenanigans. Ace of spades! Sergeant Daniels calls from the front of the formation. At the announcement of the card, everyone groans. Fifteen side straddle hops! Yo, what the hell is that? Asks Gershwin, the skinny black kid who spends more time cracking jokes than working out. No shade, pure honesty. I'm jealous of him, not gonna lie. He somehow manages to pass his PT test with flying colors every time while I just barely squeak by. It's a jumping jack, dumbass, calls back Younger, a sharp-tempered white girl from Texas without a hint of a drawl, the joke being that she's too high-strung to even adopt the accent of her home state. Younger and I had gotten drunk together in the barracks day room one night when everyone else had gone home for Christmas break, neither of us having the leave for a trip home. At least, that was what we told everyone. The truth is... I didn't have the money for a plane ticket. All of my cash was sent back to my family in Pennsylvania. When the economy tanked after the last pandemic, it was the least I could do. I never found out Younger's story, but I figure it was something similar. Gershwin rolls his eyes at Younger. They dated once. It was a spectacular catastrophe. And there's still a bit of lighthearted venom there, if you're watching for it. Not because either of them have feelings for the other, but because the rest of us expect it. Not the exercise. That! Twenty-six pairs of eyes turn to where Gershwin points. The first sergeant approaches with the company commander and a strange, boxy-looking bot. First sergeant wears a look of disgust on her face. It's a standing joke that there would be nothing better than to invite her to one of the barracks poker games. Meanwhile, the company commander looks happier than a pig in shit. Sergeant Daniels scrambles to his feet and calls the platoon to attention. The company commander laughs in delight and waves away the necessary adherence to protocol. At ease, at ease. Good morning, 4th Platoon. I see we're getting some of that great PT in this morning. Not even heading to war can stop you guys. The platoon murmurs in polite response at the company commander stating the obvious. Such idiocy is expected from the brass, though. It's what they do. It isn't worth pointing out that we've already been to war twice in the past three years. When I got to my unit from training, I was told that I'd be shipping out in less than a month. At some point, packing your shit to head to some country you've never heard of gets pretty routine, like selling cable door-to-door, maybe. Just with more shooting. But you can't just shrug at an officer, so we all smile politely instead. Well, we're going to interrupt your session a little bit to introduce you to the newest member of your platoon, the company commander continues. He beckons us closer, his smile friendly. Bring it in, bring it in, gather around. Everyone is hesitant to move into a group. We reek after nearly an hour of exercising. But the closeness isn't the problem. 
We don't like the company commander, and not just because the man is a yutz. A month ago, he canceled all travel and pre-deployment leave, worried that some of us might go home and bring back something gross, which is plausible as the latest virus sweeps across the country. Most everyone was pissed. No one wants to go overseas for a year without at least seeing the people they love first. The company commander didn't get that, and our platoon will never forget it. It's fine. He'll be in a new position in a few months' time, and we'll have new brass to hate. And the circle of life will continue. Once we're all up on one another, the company commander gives us all a big, cheesy grin, just like he won a game show or something. I would like for you all to meet Ted. I know we've been hinting at something big coming to Alpha Company, and this is it. The Army's first completely self-aware combat drone. The thing behind the company commander lumbers forward. The silence is filled with sounds of heavy breathing and quiet distress. The bot is monstrous, like something out of a near-future movie about an evil artificial intelligence bent on destroying humankind. It's painted coyote, the same pale brown as the rest of our vehicles. A generation ago, it would have been OD green with black splotches, and I can't decide which would be worse. It lurches toward us with a creaking racket that'll warn any insurgent within a click of its approach, and despite the many, presumably, weapon-concealing compartments visible on its body, there's nothing really menacing or overtly threatening about the thing. It's just a bot. It could be carrying groceries to a car or mowing the lawn or any of a dozen things that humans can totally do better. How many billions of tax dollars do you think they dropped on that? Younger asks, leaning in to whisper in my ear. They should have given us a bonus instead, Gershwin mutters from my other side. Or at least let us go home on leave, Younger says, and there are murmurs of assent, mine included. Hello. I am Ted, Tactical Enhancement Drone, the bot says, its voice feminine and reassuring. The sound is somewhere between an archaic video game and a phone's clueless AI, and there are a few snickers from the platoon. This is the killing machine that's going to turn the tide of the war? I will be assisting you on your missions. A number of looks are exchanged especially amongst the junior enlisted like me. But the company commander pretends not to notice and continues talking. Ted here is part of a pilot program to introduce bots into our platoons. The battalion and brigade commanders have a lot of excitement for this initiative, a new era of soldiering, and Alpha Company is lucky enough to test the flagship specimen. Well, one of them. Cool, but where are the others? asks Gershwin, loud enough to be heard by the company commander, and the nods of the rest of the platoon make clear that he is not the only one wondering just how many of these bots are wandering around out there. Frankly, it seems less like an asset and more like yet another thing we have to keep an eye out for on the battlefield. Only one in a war zone, this fella right here. Uh, at least he will be once you all get there. The company commander says with an easy grin, 
It's a non-answer and pretty much expected. No one bothers to tell us anything until it's too late to matter. There is also something disconcerting about referring to the unit as a he rather than it or she, especially given the feminine speaking voice. I'm depending on y'all to take him out and show him the ropes the next few days so that he's calibrated and ready for action, the company commander says. Your platoon leader will have more information since Ted will be joining you for the last few days of your pre-deployment training. I'm going to let you all get back to that good PT, and I'll see you around. The company commander walks off with a wave, but the first sergeant remains behind. Make sure you follow the direction of Sergeant Peters, as they have all the necessary information for the unit. You'll also be getting a contractor who will tag along and ensure the unit is properly maintained. He should be along later today. All right, enough tomfoolery. Get back to work. We meander back to our PT formation, and I find myself looking at the bot as I go. All through the rest of the hour of jumping jacks, push-ups, sit-ups, and the like, my eyes drift to the bot, which stands off to the side of the formation, just watching us. No matter how much I tell myself it's fine, I have the feeling that this bot is really, really bad news. Ted Log Initial entry 35183. This unit accompanied currently assigned platoon for training. Left seat, right seat is a handoff process in which the current unit in a war zone trains the incoming unit on best practices for conduct of operations in an occupied area. During the process, this unit observed that many of the soldiers found the unit suspicious and unnecessary. Data analysis indicates this may present an issue for future combat drones. An index of images has been provided for analysis and has been sent via communications link. Entry complete. Ted fucking sucks. By the time we touch down in the combat zone, we've decided we hate the unit. The bot is efficient and good at what it does, Two weeks of training with it was brutal. It was damn near flawless while we were fucking up left and right. No matter the battle drill, no matter the task, the bot accomplishes it without fail. And the rest of us? The rest of us are human. It's not that we aren't good soldiers or competent. Each of us has been deployed a few times and we know how to survive out there. But we aren't computers. So it's not like we can run through half a million possible scenarios in a handful of seconds and know we're making the best decision. We have to go with our gut. And that's not something Ted appreciates or can even take into account with its fancy preset algorithms. It becomes clear that being assigned to work with a bot isn't a reward. It's hours of frustration followed by a full report of all the ways we forgot to do this and that. Even people like Sergeant Daniels, who really, really likes shooting things, are annoyed and flustered by the bot's constant perfection. The day we had to simulate clearing a building, we were still on the first floor, while the bot had already gone through the entirety of the exercise, declaring the all clear while we were still discussing the operation. Sergeant Daniels had tried to explain to the bot's handler that it was useless to have a unit that went off and did its own thing without waiting for the rest of the platoon. The contractor, 
a white guy in a polo shirt and khaki pants with the worst facial hair I have ever seen, shrugged. Ted is following its programming. If you have a problem with it, then log a report. All calibrations are handled at the dispatch center. He tapped on his tablet as he spoke, barely acknowledging the sergeant. He'd introduced himself the day Ted arrived in our unit, but we'd all immediately forgotten his name and had taken to calling him Greasy because his shoulder-length hair always looked like it needed to be washed. He did not appreciate the nickname. Dispatch Center? Sergeant Daniels asked, frowning in confusion. Making Sergeant Daniels look stupid was never a good idea. He had a way of going all out when he got angry, and he usually dragged the rest of the squad along with him for the ride. The bot logs all interactions and observations and sends them back to the dispatch center on Langley for research and calibration, Greasy said. This was all in your briefing. Sergeant Daniels didn't say anything, just walked away. But the next day, our squad got called before the platoon sergeant, and we had the joy of watching ourselves fuck up in real time, courtesy of Ted's numerous observation cameras. Some of us were hoping Ted would have a meltdown and remain stateside, but when our plane touches down in the war zone, the bot is clanking along right next to us. It's a damn spectacle, and the only person excited about it is the company commander. We're only on base for a few hours before news spreads, as it tends to do when people are bored and ready to be somewhere else. The other units stare at us as we go through the motions of unloading our gear and taking inventory, the bot staggering along like a drunken shadow wherever we go. And in the chow hall, a guy comes up to our table, kind of angry. Hey, what's the deal with the robot? He says. You guys work with it at all? Ted stands next to the entrance to the dining facility, waiting for its assigned squad for the day to be finished so they can move on to the next task. If they're late leaving, if they dally too long or linger over coffee, that triggers a report to the platoon sergeant. Like life ain't hard enough. Yeah, we trained up with it, Younger says, no one else wanting to be bothered in the middle of dinner. We're all tired after a long flight and an even longer day of getting our stuff settled. And first call is at 0530, even though we're all jet-lagged and bummed to be at war again. And, the guy demands, his name tape says Rogers, and he's just in E4 like the rest of us, so I can't figure out why he's so pressed. It's not like he's in competition with the bot. Anyone who can fog a mirror can make sergeant, and Gershwin, Younger, and I have debated many a time the pros and cons of becoming a non-commissioned officer. For now, we're all just happy to collect a paycheck and not worry about gaining rank. Look, the bot fucking sucks, Gershwin says. It logs all of our actions and reports them back to someone who then calls our platoon sergeant who reads us the riot act. Like it's just one more way for the army to make sure we're doing what they want. Yeah, but have you heard why they're fielding them? Rogers leans in, glancing around, like anybody in the chow hall gives a crap about our conversation. They're going to replace us with those robots, like the same way they phased out the pilots with the aerial drones. This is the next step. Who cares? asks Younger around a mouthful of mashed potatoes. It's not like I want to get shot. Let the bot take a bullet. Well, I care, Roger says, his emotions running way higher than the situation calls for. 
Well, I got a family, and my wife just told me she wants to try for another fucking kid when I get home. How am I supposed to support my family if the robots are taking all the work? Man, you need to calm down, Gershwin says. We don't like the bot either. We're just doing our job. Roger stomps off back to his table. They all look back at us when he talks, and it's clear that he's relating the conversation to the rest of his friends. Why is everyone so ragey about this stupid bot? Younger asks. Who the fuck cares if we get replaced by a unit made of Kevlar and circuit boards? Personally, I hope we do. I'm not re-enlisting. And I'm only still here because we got stop-lost. Send my ass home. I'm ready, she laughs. But I'm not listening to her. I'm thinking about the thing the guy said, about being replaced. I'd consider the bot a hassle, one more metric of how we suck. The army already weighs us, tests our endurance, and treats us like something between property and errant children. The additional data provided by the bot seemed like another way for the brass to micromanage us. And not just us, but the NCOs as well. Sergeant Daniels was frustrated by his inability to discuss and push back against the bot's observations, and everyone else was so afraid of making mistakes that you could see folks paralyzed by indecision, worried what the bot would make of an action. But now, I had to consider the idea that we would be sent home with a letter of thanks and best wishes as the bots took over fighting wars. What would I do then? What would my family do? I send all of my money home, and that's the only thing keeping a roof over my family's head since my father had died and my mother lost her job as a cashier, first to the old pandemic, and then later to the bots the store replaced her with. There isn't much I can do that pays as well as the army. Rogers is right. We're going to take a short break here. When we come back, more of Collateral Damage. This is Future Tense Fiction. Stay with us. You're listening to Future Tense Fiction. I'm Maddie Stone. Now, back to Justina Ireland's story, Collateral Damage. Ted Log, initial entry 35223. Hostility toward this unit persists despite numerous successful missions engaged with enemy hostiles and neutralized the threat before any friendly casualties were sustained. Full report forthcoming. Our first patrol with the unit we're replacing, sort of a tour of their most active sectors, is a spectacular shit show. And not because we do anything wrong, but because Ted does everything right. The day starts off fine. The other squad, friendly and helpful, We walk a foot patrol with the squad, who has been maintaining the main supply route that runs through the local market. It's supposed to be a quiet trip, since most of the fighting in the country has moved down into the southern regions. The idea is to see the potential choke points in areas where we can get seriously screwed if we're not vigilant. The only problem is, before we can get any of the survey done, Ted is shooting people. Hostiles detected. Drop your weapon and lie on your front. Surrender, or you will be killed, Ted suddenly announces, repeating the warning in two or three other languages. Who the hell is that thing talking to? asks the sergeant from the other squad. Sergeant Daniels looks around in confusion, trying
trying to find the supposed threat that Ted has already spotted. I don't know, he says, but waves us to spread out and find cover anyway. It's just in time, as a spate of gunfire hits the dirt road right where we stood moments before. Ted is programmed to scan all areas for possible threats, Greasy calls out, tucked away safely in a nearby doorway, unarmed and just watching the scene unfold. He saw your sniper before any of you did. Threat acknowledged, engaging, Ted says, the compartments opening up and a couple of semi-automatic rifle barrels deploying. There's nothing to do but watch as Ted shoots a man on a nearby roof, along with a woman who pops out of a nearby alley, the whole thing taking place so quickly that by the time I realize what's happening, there are two dead people in the street. Threat neutralized, all clear, Ted says, and I swear I can hear the smugness in the bot's voice. And even if it's not really there, if a bot can't really feel superior, Greasy's shit-eating grin as we regroup says it all. Ted Log, initial entry 35229. This unit accompanied assigned platoon into sector for patrol. While on patrol, platoon made contact with enemy. Specialist Thompson and Sergeant Daniels were observed committing hostile acts toward non-combatants. When this unit intervened, it was severely damaged by Specialist Gershwin. Report forthcoming. Entry complete. The niggling, persistent feeling that Ted is out to replace us doesn't go away. It only gets worse. As we have a change of command ceremony and the unit we're replacing leaves to finally go home, I keep thinking how it makes sense that a bot would replace soldiers. They don't need to eat or sleep. They won't complain about going home for leave or that the on-base housing is unsafe for their families. They certainly won't get old or get sick and die. Bots could be a perfect solution to an endless war. And I should feel happy about that, should look forward to going home and finding something else to do. But every time I consider it, I hear the sound of my mother's voice, the relief as she tells me that they used the money I sent to pay for rent or to get my younger siblings new shoes or even order pizza. All the little things that people take for granted. How can I let someone take that away from them? When I confess these feelings to Younger one night as we lie in our bunks, she snorts. Wait, so just because the army has given you a chance to help your family out, you think that Ted is bad? I mean, don't get me wrong, Ted is awful and I hate it so much, but I'd much rather send an army of bots over to some shithole country to keep the peace than any other American. And there are other ways to make a living, like why don't you start taking online courses or something? I saw a place that you can get a degree in 24 months. That's not that bad. Oh, and have something that gets you no work and a mountain of debt besides, Gershwin says, chiming in. Great plan. Younger huffs in annoyance. Huh, so it's better that they send us off to fight time and time again? Besides, that stupid bot saved our lives. None of us would have seen that sniper the other day, at least not until one of us got shot. Gershwin shrugs. Maybe, but that was this time. What about next time and the time after that? We start to rely on the bot and we're going to get complacent and screw up. Either way, I signed my paperwork same as you. I knew what I was getting into and it was worth it. I have a brand new car. 
Do you know how many of my cousins don't even have their driver's licenses? Yeah, the bot is useful, but that doesn't change the fact that a lot of us won't have anything to do if they send us all home. I'll be broke. And maybe worse, he says, a shadow falling over his face briefly. And we all know what he means. A lot of us here use the army to escape the terrible lives we left behind. Fine, so what are you going to do about it? It's not like you can just blow up Ted, Younger says. Well, why can't we, I say, the words coming out before I even consider their impact. Ted isn't in the barracks. There's a closet where they send the unit to charge and upload its data at the end of the day. But I still glance around to see who else might have heard. I'm surprised to realize that we have an audience. The other specialists in our platoon have left their conversations to listen in on ours, and now a few people sit up in their beds at my suggestion. Yo, you serious? Calls Thompson, a thick black guy with equally thick glasses. You really thinking about destroying that bot? Yeah, why not, I say, warming to the idea. It's a war zone, right? Battlefield loss. We make sure Ted doesn't come home, and we get to spend the rest of this deployment business as usual. How do you figure that will keep the army from replacing us with bots? Younger demands. It's a prototype, right? Calls another girl from down the row of beds. Garcia, a Mexican girl from Arizona, who only joined to get her American citizenship since it was the easiest way for undocumented immigrants like her. My sister worked on a few of those when she was at MIT. She said that a prototype failing can set a program back years, sometimes decades. Maybe if we destroy this bot, they won't be in such a rush to replace us. <laughs> it's a good idea, Gershwin says, and Younger snorts in derision. That sets off an argument, everyone pitching how we destroy the bot or debating if we even should. I drift off the ebb and flow of the debate lulling me to sleep. But when I wake the next morning, the idea sticks with me, and I can't help but think that this might be the answer to all of our problems, no matter how insane it might sound. That, of course, is when everything goes to shit. It's supposed to be a simple supply run, just us and a line of dry goods, toilet paper and soap and all of that kind of stuff. We drive through the neighborhoods and streets in the middle of the day, so the locals know we're watching, and while it's easy to see oncoming threats, only today, there's an old man with a mule-drawn cart blocking traffic along our route, cars honking and people yelling at him to move. The mule is either sick or on strike, because it won't get up. And before we can decide to either help or turn around, gunfire is hitting the outside of our vehicles and people are screaming and heading for cover. It's the old man! Someone yells over the radio, but the mule cart is in front of us, and the gunfire pelts the left side of the vehicle. It's not unusual for folks to panic in the midst of a firefight. We all know that the most important thing is finding cover. Threat identified. Enemy combatant located in nearby market stall. Threat neutralized. Ted announces in a bullhorn loud voice. We don't even have time to react before the bot has killed the target, but the shooting continues. Take cover! Left side! Green building! Someone else yells, because unlike Ted, 
We've been in situations like this before, and we know that there's usually more than one person trying to kill us. We're the U.S. Army, after all. I put the vehicle in park and grab my rifle, rolling out the passenger side after Sergeant Daniels, gunfire shattering the window, and glass raining down on us as we get out. You good? Sergeant Daniels says, not waiting for my answer. Not that I would have one for him. The adrenaline is pumping, and all of our training is kicking in. I don't have time to be scared, even though there's an endless parade of swear words scrolling through my brain. Out of the vehicle, we find cover. The gunfire hesitates, but we all stay where we are, knowing that this is a ploy to get us to show ourselves. People are screaming words that I don't understand, and far off a woman howls, and then there's an explosion and more screams. Threat neutralized, says Ted, walking around the edge of the vehicle. All clear. You all may return to your previous duties. Don't you dare fucking move. Hold your position, Sergeant Daniels growls at me. But I wasn't going anywhere. Sergeant Daniels remains where he is, and I do as well, trusting his instincts more than I do the stupid bots. But Younger stands up a little ways down the line of vehicles, and as soon as she does, gunfire erupts once more. She goes down, and that is when shit gets real. Sergeant Daniel stands up, returning fire and taking out a shopkeeper wielding an AK-47. Ted either missed the heavily armed man or decided he looked friendly. Someone is screaming for a medic, and locals are crowding around to gawk at Younger, who's taken a bullet to the neck, blood fountaining out into the dirt. The NCO's telling us to set up a perimeter and make sure there aren't any more hostiles as our medic gets to work. I'm working on autopilot, so I only barely register Thompson kicking a civilian who is curled up on the ground holding a handgun and yelling that he only wanted to help. Non-combatants should not be engaged, Ted says, walking over, the compartments on its arms opening up to reveal gun barrels, which are now pointed at Thompson. Stop that fucking bot! Someone yells, but there are people running all over, and who knows what Ted is aiming at. Gershwin is closest, and he bashes the bot in the face area with the butt of his rifle. The drone stumbles. Sensor damage, it says. The gun barrels retreat. It's enough to make Gershwin hesitate, even though he's winding up for another round. But Thompson doesn't, smashing the back of Ted's head with the butt of their weapon, knocking off a piece of antenna that probably costs more than what any of us makes in a year. Back off, back off, Sergeant Daniel says, pushing Thompson away from the civilian before taking a set of flexicuffs off his vest and locking up the local's hands. We got this, Ted. Call for medical help. Where the fuck is that contractor? Someone else yells. No one seems to know where Greasy got to, and we're too busy to babysit the damn bot. The unit wobbles away without confirming the call for help, and I go back to providing security, waiting for any of the civilians to do something suspicious so I can react. But the streets have emptied out, everyone finding things to do in the aftermath of the violence. The medics patch Younger up as best as they can and load her into the lead vehicle to speed her to the hospital. Someone has shot the mule, and a group of people, our platoon and locals who are apologizing in whatever English they know, drag the carcass out of the way. By the time we load back into our vehicles and start driving, we still have to finish our supply run, 
Younger has been taken back to the base to be patched up, and my hands shake. As I drive the truck, my mind races. We need to get rid of that bot, I mutter, mostly to myself. That fucking bot got Younger shot. I'm not expecting Sergeant Daniels to respond, but he does. Seems to me that an enterprising group of junior enlisted might be able to figure out just how to go about such a thing, he says. When I look over at him, he's putting a wad of chewing tobacco into his lip, getting it settled before grabbing an empty water bottle and spitting into it. Really? I ask, surprised. I think it makes sense that a group of soldiers might be upset enough to do something rash, he says with a shrug. Maybe even just running down the damn bot with a vehicle when we stop to drop off the supplies. But what do I know? Ted Log, follow-up entry 35229. Unit alert. Unit has been severely compromised. Shutting down to prevent any further. Ted doesn't make it back to the base. After we deliver our supplies, the bot goes wandering off, and when we get back, Greasy is beside himself. You let a billion-dollar piece of experimental equipment wander off? He asks, pulling at his hair in distress. Wasn't it your job to keep track of it? Sergeant Daniel says, spitting tobacco juice into the dust near the contractor's feet. We can show you the last place we saw it, if that helps, but I'm not sure whether it was with us after Younger got shot. We were distracted. I don't think it was, Gershwin adds helpfully. Did you see it? He asks me, and I shrug. I don't think so, I say, but I was driving, so I don't know. You have a tracking device on it, right? Sergeant Daniels asks. I suppose you should call that dispatch center. They'll locate it for you. The contractor stomps away, and we all go about our business. Later that evening, we get news that Younger is going to make it, but she's been flown out of the country to Germany for surgery. She's going home early after all. Greasy finds Ted a week later with the help of a special forces unit, since the bot's existence is theoretically classified. The unit is mangled, and there's a bit of questioning of just how it ended up in a ditch along the side of the road about a mile or two away from where Younger was shot. The front sensors are smashed and the entire antenna array is missing, so they couldn't upload any of its data. One of the special forces guys said it seemed like the thing might have been hit by a vehicle, Since its memory was severely compromised, the passive radio frequency signal barely functioning when they found it. Turns out, the last bit of data it had queued to send was a full recounting of the firefight, which clearly shows the bot drawing down on Thompson. Weeks later, when Greasy asks us how it got damaged, we ask him why it tried to shoot a soldier. He doesn't know. And we don't know either. No one knows anything. How could we? None of us saw anything. We were worried about staying alive. That's just the way it is sometimes. No one notices that the paint at the front of my vehicle seems a little scuffed, or that there's a layer of coyote flakes that aren't quite the same hue. We're at war, after all. Things happen. And that is all I have to say about that.
That was Justina Ireland's short story, Collateral Damage, as read by Joanne Lichtenstein. Coming up, Justina joins us to talk about why eliminating humans from combat is more morally complex than it sounds. That's just ahead on Future Tense Fiction. Stay with us. You're listening to Future Tense Fiction, and you just heard Collateral Damage, a short story from author Justina Ireland. She's the writer of several youth and young adult books, including Rusted in the Root, Promise of Shadows, and Vengeance Bound. Her interest in the military was fueled by her own service. Justina Ireland enlisted in the Army as a way to pay for college, and later worked as a civilian employee at the Department of the Navy. I began our conversation by asking Justina how her military background has helped shape her writing career. I think every experience impacts who you are as a writer. Um, And I just happen to have the experience of of, uh, the military. Um, But I will say one of the things that we always talk about and harp on in the military is discipline. And I don't think the military teaches you discipline so much as risk and reward (laughs) and understanding, you know, there are rules. And if I break them, there are consequences. Um, And am I, is the juice worth the squeeze, so to speak? And so I do think when you're writing, sometimes the most important thing you can discover when you're writing is when an idea doesn't work or when it's not a functional idea or when it's just not something worth spending your time on. And so for me, the military has really given me that kind of perspective. And I think some people see that as discipline, but I don't think it's so much like marching in a line and like, you know, making sure everything's like hospital corners on my bed. It's more about looking at the planning horizon I have and figuring out what makes sense and what doesn't make Mm, sense. mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And those sound like really critical skills when you're working on something fully creative where you don't really know where it's going at the outset. What inspired you to write a story about a war robot named Ted? Was this born out of your own experiences working in the military in any way? Or or was this kind of a separate idea that came to you? I joined in 1998. So right before September 11th. Um, And even then, the big talk was, you know, the army of one, like the, the, the soldier who can like, you know, who's capable across the board. And then um, when September 11th happened, we really kind of were in a position where it seemed like we were going more from that more like boots on the ground type of, of identity in the military to, you know, the technology of the future, right? And I just kept thinking about like how a lot of our technology comes from military applications and then find civilian applications later. And it just seems to me that, you know, we have so much automation already that we should see that cross back over. We should see automated fighters. But I also think, you know, we've we've seen that in science fiction for a really long time, right? Like, you know, whether it's like giant mechas like we see in like anime or if it's, you know, like, you know, tiny nanobots, like the idea of automating what we consider to be human labor or human endeavors is something I think we're all deeply interested in. It's just whether that technology is going to make our lives better or worse. Um, I always think about this because I, I read a lot of like stupid papers on faster than light travel and the likelihood of it. But I read something once and it was basically human beings will never achieve faster than light travel because we will turn that technology on each other first before we reach space. And I just, I, that stuck with me in such a fundamental way because I do think 
at the end of the day, we are so inherently self-destructive that we can't get out of our own way. Yeah, I think what you were just saying about how so much of our technology comes from the military before finding civilian applications. We're living in this era where machines are playing this increasingly important role in war. And we're seeing that borne out in so many different ways between like drone strikes um, becoming a more important tool, definitely since the war on terror. And then also like this steady rise in more automated and remote controlled like bombs and other forms of weaponry. Um, But at the same time, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong or if you have a different view on this, but it seems to me from a layperson's perspective that human troops who put their bodies on the line haven't really disappeared from warfare. And I don't really see a clear path toward that happening in the immediate future. And I'm just curious whether you see a possible future in which robots like Ted render human boots on the ground pretty much obsolete. I think that's that's an excellent point. But I also think it's a really, really sticky thing to consider. We live in a, you know, we live in a country with an all-volunteer army, which is great. Um, but the people who join our army is not equitable, right? There are not a lot of millionaires' kids going and signing up and raising their right hand to, like, defend the Constitution. And I think that really is what the difference is. I think if we ever get to a point where we have, like, a universal basic income, a set guaranteed quality of life, you will see less people join the military, But until you have a position where everyone can go to college and not come out, you know, $100,000 in debt, I think you're going to see people still join the military. I think the work will change. I think at some point it might be more administrative, like we kind of see on the civilian side of the DOD and less, you know, actually, you know, in the trenches fighting, so to speak. Part of how we use the military in this country is as a social safety net. Where if you have too many children, if you got married too young, if you want to pay for college, if you live in a terrible part of your city with no opportunities, hey, here's the army, here's the Air Force. And I think as soon as there is a point where we don't have a huge impoverished class in this country, you will see, you know, the military go away. Can you just talk a little bit more about sort of the moral complexity of eliminating humans and then also replacing them with robots? Yeah, I mean, I think it's honestly, I don't think moral implications are necessarily the first question anybody asks in the government. I think it's more the first thing people ask is, what is the cost? You know, what is the what is my return on investment? As long as it's cheaper to recruit a kid from the middle of flyover state, Pennsylvania, you know, inner city, Detroit, they will continue to recruit. The point where the cost per soldier is lower to be mechanized than it is to be human beings, that's when you'll see mechanization, bigger mechanization in the army. And, you know, like I've been out for a while. I've been out, uh, I've been out of the government entirely for about two, three years now. Um, I've been out of the active duty military or the, the, the military side for about, gosh, for 13 years now. Um, and things, you know, change very quickly. But one of the things that's still consistent is you drive into any economically depressed area, the local mall, local strip mall, and you will see the recruiting office. I've never seen a recruiting office in the high-end suburbs. And there's a reason for that. I know we talk about the moral implications, but I honestly don't think people think about the moral implications as much as they think about the financial implications. And then they use the moral implications to justify the financial decisions they're making. Absolutely, yeah. And 
Fighting aside, a key part of Ted's job seems to be surveilling the human soldiers and then reporting on their performance to their bosses. Unsurprisingly, this is something the platoon's commanding officer in your story loves and everyone else seems to hate. And I think this actually goes back to what you were just saying about the financial calculus at the heart of how the military works, is the idea that this would be a tool not just for waging war more effectively, but for ensuring that all of the humans involved were sort of performing to their peak or maximum or or trying to extract as much performance out of them as we can, right? And if we can use this this automated robotic tool to watch everyone and flag every lapse in performance, maybe we can squeeze a little bit more efficiency out of our workers. And I'm just curious why you decided to write that aspect of TED as such an important part of the story? Were there other workplace surveillance technologies that inspired this? Yeah, so like I think one of the things that's hard to kind of convey about the military is the fact that you're always being weighed, measured, and judged. You have rating systems where you're ranked against your peers. You have, if you are fat, you are called in every month to get weighed in and berated because you're fat, because you're overweight, right? We have, we have, um, physical fitness tests to make sure that you're, that you can still run. And, and that makes sense. But at the end of the day, it's because the military treats you like property. You're always being watched. You're always being criticized. The idea that you're a human being in the military sometimes falls by the wayside. Um, you don't get to be an individual. You're just like everybody else. You're just like everybody else. You're wearing the same thing as everybody else. Um, and sometimes you don't even get to be a human being. And I think that's, that's the part of the military that a lot of people don't get is the dehumanization of it, which is why I think people come out of the military and have such a terrible, terrible time reintegrating back into society is because you've come out of a system where everyone's told you what to do all the time, even down to what to dress and what to eat. And now you're making decisions on your own. And did that flattening of individuality or identity that you're, that you're describing, did that play into your decision to make the the narrator in this story relatively anonymous. I mean, that was one thing I keyed in on is we don't even know their name, much less their gender identity or anything else about them, except that they have family in Pennsylvania. That's kind of what the army is about. People sometimes forget that you have to give up a part of your own self when you're part of a team. You have to put some of your own needs and wants on the back burner to make sure the team succeeds. And I think for a lot of people, that's really hard. Like I was, I had the benefit when I was enlisted of being in a military, um, military intelligence unit. So like, you know, every kid who was there was the smartest kid they'd ever met. And like a lot of people who I'd gone, I like joined up with were actually college graduates. And it was still a case of, we're just going to do this. We're just going to do this. And you ask the platoon, like, hey, why are we doing this? They're like, look, just, you know, just execute. You're not in charge. And I think after a while you're like, why am I just executing? You know, we still get, we do get those like briefings like, you know, like, hey, don't follow an unlawful order. But, it, you know, that's easier said than done when you're in the situation. Like when you're standing in front of your platoon sergeant and you're saying, I'm not going to make my squad do this. This is ridiculous. And they like are dressing you down to like brass tacks in front of a crowd. The psychological impact of being in that space for an extended period of time, I think it takes a little bit of your identity away. And I think a lot of people who, when they get out, they spend a long time rebuilding Mm -hmm. that part of themselves. Mm -hmm. One other interesting detail I noticed about identity in your story, I thought it was uh, kind of funny how the narrator um, noted early on that the way Ted is gendered as a he is disconcerting, particularly given the robot's feminine voice. And I found this interesting 
because I think it plays into expectations we have about robots built to serve us um, in, in kind of contrasting ways. Like on the one hand, we often expect robots that are built to serve us will have feminine voices. And on the other hand, they're often gendered based on the role that they fill in our lives. And then of course with Ted, these expectations are sort of pitted against one another. Were you trying to make a point about the absurdity of how we gender robots in the first place? All the time. (laughs) (laughs) If it seems like I'm trying to make a point, I probably am. But yeah, I I find it actually absolutely ridiculous that every single robotic voice we have is feminine. And it plays into that idea of like, women are here to help. I only speak to my own experiences because I, you know, I, I walk around in the skin I walk around in. But, you know, as a black woman, I feel like we're extra expected to help. So much of our media, so much of our society tells you like black women are here to help. And it's really disconcerting, like how that plays out even in our technology. When was the last time you called a a hold line and the voice telling you somebody will be with you shortly was a masculine voice, right? And like, you know, we can say that there's some sort of technology, but the reality is it's like we expect women to show up and help. We expect women to, you know, be caregivers. We expect women to, you know, put themselves aside to to clean up other people's messes. And that's maybe not how you want a war. We have to ask why more often. Why are these the things we expect? You know, what is the programming that we were ingesting? Why do we feel this yeah. way? No, I think you make a great point about that just in that in that little moment where you're sort of pitting this expectation that a machine of war is going to somehow be masculine against the idea that, you know, it's going to be Siri here to answer all of mm-hmm. our questions and Google things for us. I hate to see Siri go to war, though, because she can't even get my playlist no, right. No, no <laughs> way. She's way too confused about directions for that. Right? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and, so, and so after sort of showing up its human counterparts a lot during training in the early days of their deployment in collateral damage, Ted makes a critical battlefield error. So there's this shootout that breaks out on a supply route. It announces an all clear after killing a gunman who it believes was the sole threat. This leads to a soldier standing up and getting shot by another gunman. And it's a mistake that the narrator indicates that no human soldier with experience with relevant experience would make because their field experience would have told them that shooters don't tend to work alone in these circumstances. But we have this bot, of course, that's never been deployed in circumstances like this before. And I'm just wondering whether this speaks to the inherent risk with putting too much trust in AI, in your view, especially when people's lives are on the line. Yeah, so I'm not anti-technology, but what I am is realistic about the people who do program the technology. I think the idea that we should just inherently be trusting of machines, we don't know what the underlying programming is, we don't know what their ultimate goal is, is it's kind of silly. But I mean, I, I also think at some point, cars will probably be better drivers than people because your car is probably never going to be texting right? <laughs> or like, you know, tr- looking for a new song to listen to. And so like, I think it's, I think it's a balance between the two. I think, I think we have to be willing to anticipate that maybe we can't put our whole selves in any one kind of camp, right? You have to be willing to like go through the situations and see how it works. Um, and I think that's really important, especially when we're talking about battlefield conditions where they change very quickly and where you have to be able to react and where like, you know, it's all about changing your decision maybe midway through because things don't right, work out. Right. 
And I think that idea you're getting at of trust or lack of trust in machines is really important and sort of central within your story as to why Ted fails, right? Ultimately, the platoon doesn't um, develop trust for this robot. And, and, you know, why should they? It's constantly showing them up, reporting negative behavior. Um, It actually turns its guns on one of them during that kind of critical shootout moment and nobody really understands why. And I just can't help but wonder, you know, if the programmers had designed this robot to perhaps be a little bit less efficient or a little more loyal to the group, maybe the ultimate solution wouldn't have been to, you know, hit it with a Jeep and bury it in the desert. (laughs) Every veteran has been in a situation where they've been handed a piece of equipment that was an utter piece of shit. I, I think part of that is the people designing the equipment are not the people fighting and wearing and using the equipment, right? A lot of times it's officers and civilians and like the whole military industrial complex away from the battlefield. You know, it's people who are there to make money, not necessarily make the best product. Part of that is a huge disconnect between the idea of war and the reality of war. And not even just the idea of war anymore, because it's not even war anymore. It's peacekeeping. It's, it's, you know, it's interdictions. It's all these different things that the military now has taken on. It's really easy to say, like, I was in back in what's it what, and this is how it was, and this is what a soldier needs. But you go two years down the line, and the soldier doesn't need that thing anymore, necessarily. I don't know if you remember during the most recent Iraq war, IEDs became a big issue. So they decided to up armor all these Humvees, right? Like, more, more armor plating. And then you couldn't drive the vehicle, right? Because it was too heavy. Like, and so they, there was all this stuff that they had to do to respond. But then, of course, once they actually got that stuff to the soldiers, things had changed. And so I, I do think, you know, like we just spent so much money in this country getting ready to fight the next war in the desert. And now it's probably going to be in Europe. I don't necessarily think that everything that is given to a soldier is really there to help a soldier. I think sometimes it's just we put money into a program and that's where it is. I don't think necessarily we can program a robot to inspire loyalty when we can't even do that well consistently ourselves. Justina Ireland is the author of Collateral Damage. She's also a veteran and the New York Times bestselling writer of numerous books for kids and teens, including Dread Nation. That's all for this episode of Future Tense Fiction, a monthly podcast featuring short stories from Future Tense and Arizona State University's Center for Science and the Imagination about how technology and science will change our lives. Tierra Darnell is our lead producer, editor, and sound designer. Production and editorial assistance from Mia Armstrong-Lopez, Tori Bosch, and Micah Espinosa. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of Slate Audio. Collateral Damage was written by Justina Ireland, read by Joanne Lichtenstein, and edited by Joey Eschrick. The other editors on the Future Tense Fiction team are Andres Martinez, Ed Finn, and Tori Bosch. I'm your host, Maddie Stone. We'll see you in the future.